After Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election, Democratic women made historic gains in the House in 2018. The story of the 2020 election is another twist when looking at the gains women are making at the federal level. Still too close to know if Kamala Harris will be the first woman vice president. So we're going to turn our attention to Congress, where women, Republican women in particular, made inroads after being in the wilderness for decades. And if Trump still lost a lot of these districts, but Republican women won, then I think that's part of the answer Republicans have to winning back the suburbs. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent at Politico and editorial director of Women Rule. And this is the Women Rule podcast. That was Allie Mutnick. She's a campaign reporter at Politico who has been closely watching congressional races for us this entire cycle. She's been kind enough after a very late night to join us to suss out exactly what happened and what impact it will have in the next Congress. Well, election night 2020 had some major impacts on Congress. Democrats and even some Republicans had predicted double-digit gains by House Democrats, and momentum seemed to be in favor of Democrats in the Senate to take back the majority. Neither of those things happened. House Democrats actually lost quite a few seats. Speaker Nancy Pelosi still holds on to her majority, but it will be the smallest majority in decades. Break it down for us a little bit. What happened? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think everyone's still trying to figure it out just (laughs) across the board. I mean, the polls were wrong. The expectation settings was wrong. And everyone's kind of trying to walk it back right now. But they set the expectations to be so much higher, to be these double digit gains. And now, I mean, I I think we're all still trying to figure it out. Well, let's talk about one of the through lines that we, we have seen early on, which is how well House Republican women did in 2020. Um, You know, it was a surprise to many. Democrats have made big gains uh, in 18 in the House with women. But talk to us a little bit about what Republicans did this cycle to set themselves up for success in a way that they maybe haven't in past cycles. So what's interesting is we don't know a ton of House races, but we do know that House Republican women did really well. Looking back at it, in 2018, it was the year of the woman for Democrats. They recruited a ton of women. They had so much success. And I think we heard just anecdotally throughout the whole start of this cycle that that inspired Republican women to run. They saw Democratic women running on the other side and they wanted to do it. So there was this huge push by Elise Stefanik, by a lot of GOP operatives um, to encourage women to run. And a lot of them did incredibly well. I think all 11 women who ran for re-election who are already in the House are coming back, and I think they're on track to gain at least 11 more. That's pretty stunning. I mean, it's such a turnaround after the 2018 cycle where in the House there were fewer women uh, in the House in that chamber than there had been in years Uh, And to your point, I I think one of the things that we've talked to a lot of women this cycle about running or the operatives that are raising the money to get them to run. And it it seemed like for the first time, Republican women were had, had kind of almost been inspired by Democrats, that they didn't need to have the experience. They didn't need to be asked, you know, three or four times to run. They were just actually saying, you know what, I can do this, too. Yeah, that's right. And I think like when women make the decision to run, I hear this all the time from from recruiters. They say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not qualified. And there'll be men who have a resume, maybe a third the size as long, who will jump in without thinking about it. So there kind of has to be a culture change before we actually see the numbers grow. And I think that was going to happen this cycle no matter what. 
And you pointed to Elise Stefanik, the Republican from New York, who basically got pretty frustrated after the last cycle, thinking that the campaign committee of Republicans and the leadership wasn't doing enough. She not only fundraised, she helped recruit women. Uh, do you see her kind of as a, as a pivotal role in this and kind of growing her own political machine around getting more women elected? Yeah, definitely. I think she created a culture where it was encouraged for women to run. She connected them. She fundraised for them. And I've talked to you know a lot of these women candidates. They have text chains with each other. They're at events with each other. They feel like there's a community and they feel encouraged and supported. And I think we can also point to there's a new super PAC that's dedicated you know, just to electing women, the Winning for Women Super PAC. And so all of these things together just make such a support system that there wasn't before. Well, let's drill down a bit on some specific races that we do know. As you said, obviously, we are just in the hours after the election where a lot of races are too close to call or they're, you know, they're still kind of digging through the results. But there there were some significant races where women uh, did did win. I want to talk first about the upset in South Florida, where you had Maria Salazar beat Donna Shalala, uh, the former you know cabinet secretary. She was a Clinton person, and that seat used to be occupied by a Republican, Ileana ross Leighton. A lot of our listeners and the kind of women of the women rule community know her. She's done a lot of events with us. But talk a little bit about this Maria Salazar uh, race with Donna Shalala. What happened there? So, I mean, this is one of the biggest shocks of the night for Democrats. This is a seat that Hillary Clinton won by 20 points in 2016. Just incredible headwinds. The DCCC didn't even place Donna Shalala on their frontline program. There was never talk of spending to help her. And Maria Salazar was running for a second time. She's a television reporter, um, a Cuban woman, very personable. And I think, you know, for the same reason that we missed a lot of the trends going on in South Florida and and Cubans and the way that they were leaning towards Trump, that had a down ballot effect that just really no one predicted in a neighboring seat in South Florida. Debbie McCarcel Powell, a Democratic woman, lost to Miami-Dade Mayor Carlos Jimenez. And going into the night, Democrats didn't think they were going to lose either of those. Yeah, they were very confident. I feel like that is one of the things that we're going to see among Democrats and particularly, I think what the speaker will have to kind of answer to is this overconfidence and and underperformance. Another big race last night, Nancy Mace in South Carolina. What can you tell us about that race? So Nancy Mace had a really impressive profile. She was the first female graduate from the Citadel in South Carolina. And um, she was touted as a very good recruit. She had good fundraising, but again, like expectations going into the night, you know, Joe Cunningham was viewed as fairly safe. Um, This was a district that Trump won by 13 points. Biden had been polling fairly competitively. We don't know yet whether or not Trump lost it. But I think a trend we're starting to see is that women were able to run ahead of Trump in some of these swing districts. And that was ultimately really the goal uh, for a lot of recruiters in the party that If you have a district that's very suburban, that has a lot of women who traditionally consider themselves Republican, maybe don't like Trump's style. If you run a female candidate, maybe that's someone that they connect with that, you know, they feel brings them back into the party. And I I think we can see by early results that that thinking prevailed. Yeah, It's really interesting to me to think about what they're doing with suburban women. You think of the soccer moms, you think of Democrats running um, very successfully for several cycles, women in some of these more suburban areas and Republicans almost kind of taking a page out of their book, right? 
Exactly. I mean, I think they said they saw Democratic women do well in swing areas in 2019 and 2018, and they felt encouraged to try that strategy this cycle. They put the infrastructure in place. They had a lot of women. And I mean, if we're going down the list, um, Stephanie Bice in Oklahoma, state senator, um, Yvette Harrell in New Mexico, um, Ashley Hinson is another really good example in an Iowa district that was an Obama Trump district. I mean, she was a, a state representative, but before that, she was a television reporter. So she had name ID in the Cedar Rapids market. She built herself as a suburban mom and she wasn't afraid to say, you know, here's where I agree with Trump, but here's where I disagree with Trump. I'm my own person. And I think that really connected with people. Yeah, she beat Abby Finkenauer, right? In a race that was called just a, like maybe half an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I do think that you've seen uh, both women and men that are Republicans running down ticket from Trump figure out a little bit of how to split split from him when they need to, but then really try to pick up his supporters at the same time. I do think one of the the other things that it, I'm watching and have been watching is really there's been so much talk about what's the future of the Republican Party. We don't yet know is Donald Trump going to have a second term or not. But there are two other House Republicans that we have to touch on, uh, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. They will be the first QAnon or Q curious members in Congress. This has been something that has really risen up during Trump's first term. Uh, what impact do you think that will have on House Republicans? Uh, how did they actually win these races? It's interesting because I think Trump creates the environment where it becomes a little bit more acceptable. He gives sort of these conspiracy theories more oxygen. And certainly Marjorie Taylor Greene's case, you know, she really rose up through MAGA Twitter, MAGA Facebook, MAGA social media. Um, and that's where she got kind of her political base. And so when she jumped to run in the seat, I mean, no one could stop her. She just had so much grassroots energy and enthusiasm. And since Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Green have secured the nominations, they've since tried to kind of walk back their past QAnon statements. So it'll be, you know, a, a test this Congress to see whether or not that keeps up, whether people really keep throwing past statements they've made, you know, up against them again, because they were both very clear that they were open to it. Marjorie, you know, even more so than Lauren. Um, and I think, yeah, House Republicans have to figure out how to deal with these members. Absolutely. And whether or not they're going to give them committee seats and, you know, whether they'll give them the mantle to potentially, you know, embarrass the party or to be kind of off message of, of where they want to be going. Um, the other last race, because we've kind of gone through so many, but I do want to talk specifically and our DCCC chair, rather, Sherry Bustos is in a tough seat uh, in Illinois. Also looks like she could lose her seat. I think that would be the first time a campaign committee head has lost their seat uh, that I can remember, certainly since I've been covering politics. The Republicans poured a lot of money into that race. A lot of people said they were putting good money after bad, that, you know, Bustos was going to be fine. We don't yet know the outcome there, but what dynamics can you tell us um, played out in that race? Yeah. So, I mean, she has a sizable rural component in her district. And so I think, again, we're like tapping into that push and pull of like Trump is still very strong in rural areas and he maybe wasn't as toxic as we thought he was going to be in the suburbs. So we saw a lot of Democrats that had sort of these white rural working class districts in the final days, Peter DeFazio in Oregon, Ron Kine in Wisconsin. Um, start to tighten. And uh, maybe that was a warning sign that Trump was still strong there. Um, Sherry Bustos had was running against a, a woman candidate. Her name is Esther Joy King. She's an army veteran. Republicans were really, really excited about her. They felt she had a great profile. Um, and they sensed that there was upset potential here in the district. And they threw in a lot of late money. 
Um, Bustos is a comfortable lead right now, and it's not clear how many mail ballots are outstanding in Illinois, but the, how tight that race is is definitely making her uncomfortable. You know, at Women Rule, we often look at how women are campaigning, how they're presenting themselves, how they're attacked on the trail. It seems to me like we've seen a shift um, in this past cycle in particular with women embracing motherhood, embracing their femininity. I'm thinking a little bit about AOC talking about wearing red lipstick or not sticking to the kind of typical uniforms of pearls and and suits. Um, Kamala Harris, for example, wearing Chuck Taylors on the campaign trail, among other things. You have been covering um, women and women running in this past cycle. What do you see as the overall trend lines or, or things that maybe stuck out to you a bit? Well, so we started the cycle with a special in North Carolina. It was the North Carolina third special, Walter B. Jones passed. Um, and there was a runoff between a male doctor and a, and a female doctor. And Republicans really... Okay, let's all of the current Republican women endorsed Joan Perry, the winning for women super PAC came in to help her and they really wanted to send this signal early on, we can increase our, our numbers right now, this is a priority for the party, they spent a ton of money, she lost by a pretty big margin and it was really demoralizing and I heard kind of anecdotally looking back at that race that um, you know, she struggled to convince people that she was conservative in those very red districts. And that really scared a lot of women recruiters because they wanted to see that they could elect women in these ruby red seats, because those are women who can be there, you know, for decades to come if they want to be. Um, they're more insulated from unfavorable environments. And so there was fear after North Carolina 3 that they weren't going to be able to do that. And that absolutely wasn't the case. I mean, I think they elected, if we're counting Lauren Boebert, um, and Michelle Fishbach, who beat Colin Peterson in Minnesota, those are two very red seats, plus, you know, maybe five others. They've elected upwards of seven women who won't have competitive reelections every two years. That's a huge boost to their numbers. Um, and I think it's proof that women can be viewed as conservative and that's not necessarily a setback. Do you think I mean, I think one of the changes we're also seeing a little bit as kind of these like so-called women's issues, it seemed like this election in particular was potentially a referendum on Trump, coronavirus, healthcare, and the economy, less of kind of these those specific issues. Did that play in, in any of these house races or was it more of the kind of meta what the country is going through at this time? Sorry, you're saying did coronavirus play a role? Yeah, I mean, I, I think instead of, instead of thinking about kind of women's issues, right? I think that for a long time, women were running on more of, of that. How did you see women positioning themselves this cycle? I think... Across the board, I don't think anyone was running as a woman. And I think you heard Republican women say that too. They're like, I'm a woman running for office, but I'm not asking you to vote for me because I'm a woman. And healthcare was just an overwhelming issue in in all of the swing seats. Um, Coronavirus made that even more so to the forefront in terms of messaging, you know, in the swing seats, fighting for pre-existing conditions, um, getting the economy back on track. So I feel like in a lot of those, I didn't see gender playing a, a, a huge role. I know you focus uh, on the House, but I do want to ask you about Senate Republican women also did better than expected. You had Senator Joni Ernst in Iowa hold on to her seat. uh, And it looks like Susan Collins is poised in Maine to win. Did you see the Supreme Court nomination and confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett play out as a big issue? It didn't seem to me to be as big of an issue as maybe I would have thought it was in some of those races. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's hard to say. Senate Senate Republican women will have, I think they're on track now to drop. They gained one new woman in uh, Cynthia Lemus in Wyoming. At, and it, even if they lose McSally, that evens out. So that puts them at an even nine. Um, and I think, 
they were really expecting to lose much more than that. But in terms of um, where Amy Coney Barrett came up on the trail, I, mean, I, I think everyone was in favor of more women on the Supreme Court. I feel like that's um, definitely something Senate Republican women held up. But yeah, I didn't notice a huge shift. All right. I know, I know we are, we're going, getting way into your, uh, your time to do other things, but I just want to, anything that you're paying attention that our listeners should be thinking about in the coming days, as you look at women in the house, uh, women and this, uh, this 2020 election. Well, I think what I'm really curious about from a house perspective is how many districts did they outrun Trump? We'll get the breakout in a few days, which for House nerds is the most exciting thing. What is the presidential breakout um, you know, for all these districts? And if Trump still lost a lot of these districts, but Republican women won, then I think that's part of the answer Republicans have to winning back the suburbs um, you know, in the Trump era or in the post-Trump era, that these women candidates were really appealing there. All right, Allie, thanks so much for your time today. Of course, thanks for having me. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 